The sermon passage this morning is John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Um, Before I get started here, I do want to make a quick request of you. Next week is our table service, our outreach service to uh, people in the community who maybe have questions and doubts. And uh, we are expecting some young children there. And last last time I mentioned this, I got a great response. And so if you're available next Sunday evening at 4 and would like to volunteer in the nursery or help with the kids, please talk to me afterwards. We would love to have your your help. Um, I think we're going to have an 11-month-old as someone visiting that congregation and would love them to have a great time and the parents to relax during the service. Um, All right, so here's a a question, a few questions that I have been asked recently. Do you know for certain that God is real? Are you absolutely sure that Jesus is alive? And, And if so, how can you be so sure? Have you ever been asked questions like that? Maybe you want to ask some questions like that. Maybe you have those same questions. And and I'll say I am grateful whenever somebody brings up things like that with me because it means that they are engaging with their doubts. It means that they are taking the time to explore the hard topics They're looking to see if those answers they want can be found. And you know, the book of John was actually written to help us with that search. John wrote this book, he tells us, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that means that John, he he wants us to investigate. He wants us to think. And he wants us to know, ultimately, that we can trust Jesus with our lives, with our eternity. And so it's meaningful here that near the very end of this book, we're just a a page away from the end, John takes some time to highlight a moment of doubt. He takes some time to highlight a moment that starts in resolute unbelief, I will never believe, and ends ultimately in saving faith. 
So today we're going to look at this passage, and, and I want to encourage you, as we do, to be honest about your own doubts. I want to encourage you to engage with those doubts, and, and because I believe that Jesus can meet you there, and that he can lead you through them. So that's what we're doing this morning, pretty simply. We're going to say that, that doubt is complicated, but doubt doesn't have to be scary, and that doubt ultimately is no match for the power of God. So doubt is complicated. Last week on Easter, we preached on the passage where Jesus first showed up to the rest of the disciples. And in that moment, Jesus showed them his wounds, and he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. But for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. We're not sure why Thomas wasn't there. We don't know what he was doing. We don't know what he was up to. But Tim Keller says one thing we know for sure is this is why you should never skip church. Right? You never know when he's going to show up. You never know what Jesus is going to do. You don't want to miss it. You know, that's, that's a joke, obviously. But I will say, speaking of Tim Keller, if you don't know who he is, uh, he's a guy who has been a pastor in New York for the last 30 years or so. He's retired now. But... He has a wonderful way in his teaching of dealing with people's objections uh, seriously, of, of dealing with them respectfully and giving thoughtful responses to uh, people's doubts and, and fears. And a while back, you might remember, I recommended a, a podcast series that had, had recently come out called Questioning Christianity. And I want to recommend that to you again. Uh, there's some wonderful content in there, especially... Uh, the question and answer time that comes at the end, the, the questions to the audience, because uh, it's a big lecture that's being recorded. Um, and I want to encourage you to check that out. Also, there's some great books out there, The Reason for God, Making Sense of God. Um, but if you have serious issues that you're wrestling with, take some time to look through things like that. Make, make use of these great resources that we have available to us, because... Uh, Doubt is not an unusual thing. In fact, John intends us to identify with the experience that Thomas is having in this passage. You can tell by the way the passage ends. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Because Jesus knows that faith without seeing something firsthand is harder. Faith without seeing something with your, your own eyes is, is a challenge and that doubts can be natural for us. Think about this. Thomas is the first person in history to ever hear the apostles claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. The first person. And how does he respond? He outright rejects it. Not only does he say, I don't believe you, but he says, Unless I see it firsthand, I will never believe. Now, why did he respond that way? Why was Thomas so adamant that he wouldn't believe? Well, there's a lot of different reasons for doubt. And we have to be careful when we look at Thomas, because I think we can kind of project our own feelings on him. But this passage doesn't tell us why Thomas doesn't believe. It doesn't give us the reasons behind his doubt. And the truth is, doubt is complicated. The things we wrestle with are, are complicated. We tend to see Thomas and we think, well, you know, he's just being reasonable. He's using his brain. He, he knows that people don't come back from the dead. And so he says, I don't believe that. 
And that sounds fair. But maybe we're reading a little bit too much of our own modern perspective back into it when we think that way. Because in today's culture, that is how we think of faith, right? Today's culture presents faith to us as something that happens apart from reason. That we tend to think of people who believe as people who have chosen something that is more emotional. They've chosen to believe primarily for emotional reasons, not rational reasons. You know what I mean? That it's not about evidence. It's just about feelings. Our culture, it tends to present atheists, non-believing, secular people as the rational, reasonable ones who choose to live a life based on evidence and facts, not like those people who believe. But that's not really the way it is. In fact, every philosopher out there will tell you that there is no way to prove or disprove the existence of God. And so that means that both a believer and a non-believer are always making faith assumptions. They're always making a, a faith claim in whatever worldview they choose. Everyone is living by faith. And all faith assumptions are, are a mixture of logic and emotion. Both things are a part of it. So for instance, you might hear an atheist, you might hear a non-believer say, you know, you Christians, you just, you just put your head in the ground. You ignore the facts because, I don't know, you want to believe that you're going to heaven when you die. It's all emotion. It's not reason. Or you might hear a, a religious person say, oh, you non-believer, you're just ignoring all the obvious evidence for God out in the world because you just want to live however you want. You just want to do what makes you feel good. Again, it's emotion, not reason. And the truth is, it's always a little bit of both. It's always a mixture. Um, in one of those lectures I mentioned, Tim Keller, he, he points out this quote from an atheist philosopher named Thomas Nagel, who admits this very thing. He wants to believe that his conclusions are purely scientific, purely rational, purely reasonable. But because he is honest, he has to admit that there is some emotion in there as well. He says, the truth is I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He says he'd like to believe that his atheism is purely scientific, but he knows that thoughtful people, educated people, are also Christians. He has to admit that there are some emotional reasons behind the decisions that he's made. There is an emotional part of his thinking. And so when we look at Thomas, we tend to think, well, this is just a rational choice that he's made. But we don't know that. It could also just as easily be a, a, an objection based in emotion. Uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. So you guys probably might remember back in 2004, uh, what went on with the Red Sox and the Yankees, ultimately Red Sox winning the World Series. Back then, in 2004, I was a newly minted bandwagon 
Red Sox fan. I had just started watching the team, and I was rooting for them. At the time, I was living in China, and during the ALCS, I would go to this little uh, internet cafe and watch the games with my buddy. Now, my, my friend's name was David. And David was a lifelong Red Sox fan. Born and raised in New England, he had been watching them lose his entire life. And if you know how the story goes of that series, the the Red Sox, playing against the Yankees, they were a great team, but they, uh, in game four, at the bottom of the ninth, three outs away from the end of their season, the Red Sox brought in a pinch runner whose name was Dave Roberts. And I just went ahead and got a picture of it because it was such a glorious moment. (laughs) Um, But they brought in Dave Roberts to steal second base. And when he did, it led to a tying run and then a victory in extra innings, and they never lost again for the year. They won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. It was a great event. But, you know, I watched game four all by myself. Because when the Red Sox lost those first three games... My friend David did not have the heart to bear the pain of watching game four. After a lifetime of disappointment, he didn't have it in him to hope anymore. And so he skipped out. And I will never forget the the look of shock, the look of disbelief on his face that afternoon. The games were in the morning because we were on the other side of the earth. But that, that, that look on, the, on his face when I said there was going to be a game five. And here's my point. You know, Thomas could have been in a very similar place at that moment. The disciples had suffered in a tremendous way in the previous three days. Perhaps it wasn't simply reason that was making him reject this assertion from his friends, but it might have been just too heart-wrenching for him to hope. Maybe it was a mixture of those things. And and that's kind of my point. All of our doubts are kind of like that. There's a variety of reasons. They're not always so clear cut. Some of the reasons for our doubts are logical. Some are emotional. Some come from the culture around us. But doubt, in other words, simply put, is complicated. But the second thing I want to tell you this morning is that doubt doesn't have to be scary. Doubt can seem like a taboo topic in the church sometimes. Maybe you've been around churches like that. Maybe you've been around a church where any objections or any questions were dismissed, you know, pushed aside. Maybe doubts have been treated like a crime to be punished. But Scripture gives us a very different approach when it comes to doubt. In fact, Scripture shows us that that doubt uh, is something we can be honest about. We can be open about our doubts with one another. Thomas, in this passage, is not shy about his doubts. And I'm grateful for that. He he doesn't have any problem letting his friends know what he really thinks. And in my lifetime, I have seen people walk away from the church. I have seen people become outright antagonistic opponents to the Christian faith, and I'm guessing that you have too, if you've been around for any period of time. But in my experience, usually that doesn't happen overnight. Those types of changes don't happen 
in an instant. Often, there is a culture in the church where people feel unable to ask questions, unable to express their doubts, unable to be honest about their feelings. But if you look through scripture, you might be surprised to find out that there are plenty of people with doubts. Some of the most important leaders in the Bible admit to their doubts. This very passage, right, we, we looked at it last week when Luke is telling this same story about when the disciples encountered Jesus that, that evening. It says, while he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it, because of joy, they asked him, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? So it says, even after seeing Jesus resurrected, the disciples had some doubts. They doubted until they saw him eat. They doubted until he explained to the scriptures to him and what it meant that he was going to rise from the dead. Or what about Matthew 28? That's a famous passage. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, if you've been around the church, you might know it. It's the Great Commission. It's that place where Jesus sends everyone out and it says, go out, make disciples of all nations. You know what I'm talking about? Well, do you know how that passage starts? It says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And then Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me. And he gave them the Great Commission. Even before the resurrection, we have a lot of content like this in the scripture. The psalmists, they are constantly being brutally honest with God. In Psalm 73, Asaph, he says that his own faith nearly failed when he looked at how difficult the world was. When he saw the prosperity of, of wicked people, he says... But as for me, my foot had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. My point is that the greatest heroes in Scripture can honestly admit to their wrestling with doubt. And if they can do that, we should be able to do that too. But not just admit them. The, the second thing we see here is that we need to Lean into them. See, we need to actively investigate our doubts. We need to take the claims of Scripture and ask, are they true? Can they? Because if they are true, they can stand up to your questions. If they are true, they can handle your examination. If God really is who he says he is, he can handle it. And the questions are too important not to ask. Eternity is what's at stake here, at the base of these questions. And in that way, I will never really understand the impulse that a lot of religious people have when they, they want to burn the books that they don't like. They want, that when they're afraid of these ideas, as if they're some kind of threat to us, that they need to get rid of all the people who disagree with us. And I say that from my own experience. When, when I was an undergrad, maybe like some of you, early in my education, I took an intro to the New Testament course. And that course was led by a non-believer, a, 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 a non-Christian professor who honestly had made his entire career around dismantling Scripture, around disproving 
the Bible, around proving that, that you shouldn't, in fact, believe in the Christian faith. And some of his arguments were good. Some of them seemed pretty persuasive. And add to that, undergrad is one of those times where all the people around you are trying to find themselves. And they're throwing off the religious baggage that they've brought with them maybe from their family of origin. So there's, there is kind of this emotional and, and social and cultural pull. Like this will be, this is the good way to go. This is what everybody's doing. And so there's this combination of, of, of rational and emotional and social reasons to doubt. But, in my experience, instead of that class shaking my faith, it ended up strengthening my faith. Because it sent me looking for the answers to my questions. At that point in my life, I had seen too much of God's faithfulness to simply accept some guy telling me he didn't exist. And so I went and I looked for other authors, other backgrounds, other perspectives, people who were equally reputable, and I read their counter-arguments. And I came out of that experience more assured of the historical accuracy and the reliability of the Bible than I ever was before I went into that class. And I bring that up to say that's, a, that's usually the experience. If you lean into your doubts, if you lean into your questions, if you refuse to be passive about them, but instead you actively engage with them, you, instead of just believing what some person tells you, when you examine your doubt, it can produce a deeper faith that you would not have known otherwise. So we should be open about our doubts, but we also need to actively investigate them. We need to lean into them. We need to look into them. It's not enough just to admit that we have doubts to the world, but we need to wrestle with them intellectually, emotionally. And finally, the third thing is that we need to be honest not just with each other, but we need to be honest with God about our doubts. I'm reminded of that famous interaction between Jesus and the man whose son needed healing in Mark. Do you remember this story? A man came up to Jesus asking him to heal his son, asking him if he could heal his son. And Jesus says to him, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That guy deserves a lot of credit for that answer. With his, son, with his son's life on the line, he's willing to say, yeah, I believe. Sort of. I, I believe, but I also have some doubts. And then we all know what happens, right? Well, Jesus says, well, too bad. And he walks away and his son dies, right? No, that's not what happens. That's not what happens at all. Jesus said, Jesus heals him. Jesus heals him. Even with his doubts, he heals his son. That's something we cannot lose track of. Because when we talk about doubts, we get into these intellectual debates. We get into these academic arguments, these discussions of faith and doubt. But do not, do not forget, in your doubts, that you're dealing with a living God. And our doubts are not a threat to him. We're dealing with a living God. And do you know what he wants most of all? 
He wants us to trust in his love. He wants us to trust in his faithfulness. And so if you're wrestling with doubts, that would be my first encouragement to you, is to be honest with him. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Doubt's not something we need to fear. It doesn't have to be scary. But we need to be honest about it. We need to dig into it and believe that our God is powerful enough to handle it. In fact, our doubt is no match for the power of God. The interaction between Thomas and Jesus is actually really beautiful when you look at it, when you think about it. Thomas, he makes this bold declaration that he would never believe unless he touches his hands and, his, and sees the wound in his side, right? He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And in verse 27, it says Jesus shows up and he says, peace be with you. And then what does he say? Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting. Believe. And then what does Thomas do? Does he put his finger in his hands and in his side? Well, there actually is no indication that he does that. He just believes. Why? Well, think about it. Who told Jesus that Thomas had made that request? How did Jesus know that was the exact thing Thomas had asked to do, to touch his wounds? Had he been there? No. There's only one answer. Thomas, in that moment, he put two and two together. He realized that Jesus knew something that no mere man could possibly know. He realized in that moment that Jesus was not just a rabbi. Jesus was not just a good teacher, but he was his savior. And that death on the cross that he had witnessed just a few days ago was not the end of his life. But it had a completely different meaning. It was the payment for his sins. It was the path for his reconciliation with God. And his resurrection was the proof of all that. And so then Thomas, as he's putting all this together, you realize he makes the most profound profession of faith, maybe in all of scripture. He says, my Lord and my God kind of a bum deal, right, that we remember him throughout history as being the doubter. Because he comes out at the end of this book with, with this, is the, this moment is the climax. This is what it's all been leading to. This is what John is telling us we must believe. He is our Lord and our God. And, and I think this is a moment, too, that we can all relate to. If, you've, if you are a believer, this is something that, that you maybe have experienced in your own life. That in those moments of searching, right, in those moments of seeking, it can feel like God is far off. 
Why has he revealed himself to his friends, but not to you? Where is God when I'm looking for him? Why isn't he answering me? But then when you finally come to that place where you see him and you trust and you believe, you realize, like Thomas did in that moment, that he was never far off. But it was actually the opposite, right? He's been the one pursuing you the whole time. So, here's what I want us to take away from this passage. John ends this passage with this statement, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. If you just pick that verse out, it can feel a little burdensome, right? It can feel like John is saying, it's up to you to get rid of your doubts and find enough faith to save your soul. But that's not the point. That's not the point at all. See, don't you see that it is the strength of Jesus that saves us, not the strength of our faith? Like that man who believed that Jesus could heal his son, how much did he need to believe? Just enough to ask. And it's the same with us. How much do we need to believe? Do we need to believe perfectly? Do we need to believe without any questions, without any concerns, without any doubts? We just need to believe enough to reach out to him for salvation. You've probably all heard that illustration before, right? Lots of pastors use it. When you're falling off the side of a cliff, right, and you see a branch sticking out the side, how much faith will it take for that branch to hold you? Well, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if you have a little faith or a lot of faith. You just need to have enough faith to grab it. It's not the strength of our faith saves us it's the strength of our savior you just need enough faith to grab a hold of him and so as i wrap up here as i close i want to give one more stab at answering that question do i know for sure that i can trust jesus do i know for sure that jesus is who he says he is my answer is yes but I'm going to answer it with a quick illustration. You all know, some of you know, we just hired a new church administrator like two or three weeks ago. Maybe some of you met her. Her name's Caroline. She's great. You should, you should go meet her if you haven't. When we hired her, we interviewed her. We read her resume. We got her references. We found out about her history. And uh, we made a, a, a decision that she would be a reliable and trustworthy person to do this job. And so far, she's been great. So, if you ask me, do I trust her to do her job well, I'll say yes. But I'll also be honest and say, but I've only known her for a few weeks, right? Some of this is based on faith. Now imagine, she continues to work here for the next 20 years. And she continues to do her job well all of that time. And if you come up to me and you ask me, do I believe that she will continue to do her job well, I'll say yes. And still, some of that will be based on faith. But it's also based on my experience working alongside of her for 20 years. Seeing her prove herself over the course of decades. And folks, walking with Jesus is like that. Walking with Jesus throughout your life has the same impact on your doubts. The longer you're with him, 
the more you see his faithfulness, the more you see that he, he will be with you, that he will provide for you, that he will care for you, that he will never leave you or forsake you. When he carries you through those hard times, when he shows you his mercy and his kindness and his grace to you, when you fall flat on your face, over time, those doubts, they start to become very small in comparison to your confidence in him. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you're on the fence about faith, I want to encourage you, take that first step, grab a hold, start your walk with him today, and you'll never regret it. And if you're on that journey, and you're wrestling with him right now, I want to encourage you, just keep walking. Stick with him and let him prove himself to be faithful to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are present in our doubts. And we thank you that you give us this great example of, of your closest followers wrestling through these things. God, be with us. Bless us. Show us your faithfulness to us today. In Christ's name.